0: You're listening to the Recovery Road Runners Podcast, the sobriety podcast for runners who want to get inspired, get informed, and start seeing results fast. Every Monday, we'll share current events, personal stories, and research on how to get sober, stay sober, and run smarter so that you can uplevel your life now. Our host, Amber, is a bit under the weather this week, so I'm stepping in as this week's guest host. My name is Doug Fingless. I'm a very active participant with Recovery Road runners and an obsessed runner. Who has found a complete life transformation in sobriety and running. I've got my sober running pal who's also one of my running coaches Vinny with me. In between the two of us, we've banked wisdom from over a decade of sobriety and races from 5k to 100 miles. Our mission is to inspire you to ditch the booze and lace up those running shoes. So let's get moving. We're very excited today to have our very first guest on the Triple R podcast, Mac Jackson. Mac is a sober runner who began his climb out of rock bottom in rehab outside of Philadelphia. Mac was an avid athlete, playing competitively through college, but eventually alcohol took him on a different path. He grew up in Maine and spent most of his life in New England before moving to South Florida three years ago. He and his wife, Hillary, have three children, Maisie, Stella, and Rafe. I know Vinny and I are looking forward to a great conversation with you today, Mac, but first, let's talk about an article of the week. We found this article at MarathonHandbook.com, and it's titled, Chinese Marathoner Uncle Chen Disqualified from Marathon for chain-smoking during race, written by Jesse Carpeth. I don't even know what to say about this article. There's a guy, his name is Uncle Chen. He's running 330 marathons while he's chain-smoking cigarettes. I mean, this is just ridiculous news, isn't it? <laughs>
1: yeah, the article raises more questions than it, than it provides answers. Like, I, I wonder how fast he could be You know, if he wasn't chain-smoking. Does he carry the cigarettes with him? Is he lighting them on the go? What? <laughs> what? Yeah. And why did he get disqualified? Is it because people are complaining or because he's breaking some... I mean, I've been to China, and I don't think anybody gives a shit if they're smoking in public.
0: Yeah, they definitely said it's against the
1: rules. Against the rules.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's done it
1: before, because it's. I think he's. there's been articles written about this guy before chain smoking. And it looked like he had more than one cigarette in his mouth at the same Mm -hmm. time. So maybe he's just doing it for the cameras. I find it hard to believe that he's a chain smoker and can run a 330. Marathon and he's run a few ultras too. Yeah, that's
0: wild. Does he chain smoke while he's running the ultras?
1: I don't know. Maybe (laughs) he's just doing it for the cameras. Who knows? I don't think we'll ever know. Maybe we can get Uncle Chen
2: as a guest. Switch to Nicorette.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, chewing gum is good while you're running, right? Yeah, it kills that urge to to overhydrate.
2: Though I do know, I believe that alpine climbers sometimes at high altitude will smoke a cigarette. Really? Really? Yeah, yeah. What's um, the benefit, like,
0: benefit of that?
2: Open the capillaries, or what? I think so. Yeah,
0: something to that effect. I mean, I think I've seen like Jimmy Chen do it, or so. I read about. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Uncle yeah. Chen has found a, a secret. Maybe it's opening up his lungs he's getting a bigger VO2 max. People <laughs> <laughs> we'll try anything nowadays, too. So if you yeah. told them that, they might believe it. Yeah, I was telling Vinny beforehand, when I, I first got sober, I, I quit cigarettes. But then I, I picked him up a couple of years into sobriety. And I was running a bunch at the time it was just stupid. Running and smoking cigarettes do not go well together. Having the urge to uh, light one up after running a 10 miler is absolutely ridiculous. And I'm glad I don't have that in my life anymore. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's all we have to say about that article.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like you said, today, we're going to talk to Mac, who definitely doesn't smoke cigarettes. Yeah. Much more intro. That was an awesome intro. Doug, I'm glad you did it. I was going to introduce Mac as just a sober vegan, vegan badass ultra runner, and a, just a good all around dude. But which is still fitting. So yeah, well, welcome, Mac. Thanks for joining us as our as our first guest.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I, either either way, either intro. Thank you guys. I really am. I mean, I'm humbled and honored to be here. Let alone as the first guest. And what you guys do is so special. And what Amber started, it really is just unbelievable work stuff you should be really proud of. So, really grateful to be here. Thank you guys. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Yeah.
1: So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Mac? How
2: did you get to where you are today,
1: you know, in sobriety and running in life?
2: Great question. You know, I guess I'll, I'll I'll give a little bit of a qualification. I'm Mac. I'm an alcoholic, for sure, through and through. I've been in recovery for about 11 and a half years now. July 11th, 2012 is my sobriety date. And uh, as Doug pointed out, you know, rehab is definitely a part of my story. Before rehab, though, I'll I'll, I'll rewind a little bit. I'll paint some broad strokes. And if you guys want to jump in and I I can sort of, you know, go down a a rabbit hole or, or fill in some blanks, I can. But generally speaking, you know, I was living in New York City and, you know, eventually that's when the wheels really started to come off. Before I went to that rehab, I was trying to get sober for, gosh, probably a good six months had one of those conversations with my wife, who I, I'd been married to Hillary for also just six months at the time when everything really sort of spun out of control. But, you know, had that conversation, said I was an alcoholic, remember that being like really what I felt was going to be a pivotal moment. And it was to some degree, But because that's when I really started to think about what my life had become. But for those six months, that's when I learned I want to be sober but I have no brakes. Like I literally just had no mechanism to stop that train that had been rolling for years and years and years. And I was pretty bad. You know, we all have a rock bottom, but I w- I was bad. I was probably not going to last too much longer at at the rate I was going. What did happen during those 6 months is while I really struggled to put days together, I was actually laying the foundation for what would become my support network after rehab. So I was going to AA meetings sporadically, probably not every day, but I was still, I was showing up and there were little, you know, kernels uh, and seeds that, that were being planted. All that was, was, was really important. I also met my sponsor before I went away to rehab. Or rather, my sponsor met me, sort of grabbed me, and forever grateful that he did. That was at 79th Street Workshop for anyone who might be familiar with New York City AA. It's a hollowed ground for sure. So I went away after those six months, you know, and, and literally it was like, I, I felt like I just needed somebody to put me in a proverbial straitjacket just so I could get 30 days together because I wanted them so badly. And but I needed an environment that was beyond my control to help me get there. So I'm I'm very much a rehab success story. It was, it was a 12-step based rehab. It wasn't fancy, no bells and whistles. But it was it was a tough run for sure. But you know, I remember one of those early moments in a small group meeting. I, I was thinking about, you know, so what's going to happen when I get starting to think about the next step. What's going to happen when I get out of here? And I remember thinking that i you know I, I i'd lost my job at that point i didn't know what my marriage was going to look like if i was going to have a marriage at all there are all these unknowns but i also there's it was like crystal clear it's like all that stuff might go away but i'm going to stay sober and i truly believe that and if i stay sober that's really like i'm doing it for me i'm not doing it for all these other you know things that i even when i was first trying to get sober i was doing it for all these other reasons and they were the wrong reasons you know and then, then when i really sort of refocused and reoriented that's when i i started to gain some traction so anyway i got out of rehab and i hit the ground running you know 90 and 90 when i was counting days um, i had my home group i had my sponsor i was um, volunteering at, at meetings and i had commitments and and i jumped right in you know and so so yeah AA is a huge huge part of my story for sure that's not to say that you know i have other sober friends that have taken different paths and and, and i love that but it just really it resonated with me at that point you know so it was 2 years in new york which i think to this day is the greatest place in the world to get sober just like new york is the greatest place for so many other things the meetings uh, the support is phenomenal i was really fortunate in that respect the running stuff would all come way later but that was sort of the, the beginning of my life in sobriety. I guess, you know, fast forward to gosh, around the pandemic, I, I'm a pandemic runner. And I remember, you know, we had just come back from Florida, actually. We were living outside of Boston at the time. And I was just, it had been a, kind of a slow trickle, but you know, it wasn't that I was closer to a drink, but somewhere along the way, I had stopped taking care of myself the way that that I should. And the way that I think a lot of us as, you know, alcoholics and addicts, it, we're so good at caring for other people first. You know what I mean? That it's easy sometimes to lose sight of you know, we don't clean our side of the street, right? How how can you tend to somebody else's? So, I was you know, I was out of shape. I would have what was uh it was kind of like one of those rich roll moments for me. Rich roll podcaster, author, Many things. Endurance athlete talks about in his book, climbing up some stairs and being winded at the top of it. And he had been sober like me for for you know the better part of a decade. And and that's sort of exactly where I was. So it was my wife Hillary who urged me to hop on the Peloton that she had had. I did, and that quickly turned to running. And that's when I actually a friend suggested Rich Roll to me. And I read his book, and I closed that book, and I finished it, and I just sort of said to myself. I'm going to run a hundred miles. And and that's when this whole, this running thing took off.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's great too, the way you describe it, because sobriety looks different for everyone who gets sober. I know uh, AA worked for me. I heard it worked for you. Vinny did 90 and 90, but that's not always the path for everybody. And a lot of people think too, sometimes that it's really easy to get sober. And it sounds like you had a very hard six month struggle there. And, you know, I'm really glad you took the step of getting into rehab. That's definitely a wonderful thing. I do have a question for you because you just jumped right from the Peloton into running. Did you have some sort of moment of clarity or something that came to you when you were on that Peloton that said, I've got to run? Or was some of the inspiration from reading Rich Roll's book? Like what made you get out and do that first run?
2: Yeah, you know, that's a that's a really good question. You know, I I think it was um it, it, it was a natural progression. And I think over this conversation, you're going to find, we're going to talk about like the the active process, right? To me, that's really important. And and I'll come back to that. But to me, it felt like a natural progression. The bike was great. You start watching the Watts climb every day and get a little bit higher and higher and higher. And then I went for a run and, and I was actually, I, I've got to tell you that first run, I was wrecked afterwards. And you mentioned in my bio, like I, I, I was a, a college athlete. I was always a team sports guy. It was remarkable how, I mean, maybe I went for a two mile run. I couldn't tell you my time. I know it wasn't fast, but my legs were totally trashed. And, and, I, and I think at that point I had enough momentum going that it was almost like, you know, a little bit of a kick in the ass. Like, oh, we got to change that. We we can't feel that way after one tiny little run. So
0: we gotta keep it up. Did you find uh mental clarity in that first run? Or did that come later as you started to build on the running? I felt momentum. I think the mental clarity that
2: would probably come later, I think. But I knew I was on to something. I knew like it clicked. And and and, and that's actually I'm glad you mentioned that because it's important not to understate that. I, I never enjoyed running. Right. Like uh, as an as an athlete, as a team sports person, I, it was a, a necessity. It was a means to an end. It was to to be in shape more than the other team. But I never enjoyed it, partly because, you know, oftentimes when you're playing sports, you're running is almost a form of punishment. Right. But that was so that was a, like a, a 180 for sure. A market difference. When I went out for that run, I did it. And it felt like like crap after. But I still I loved it. And and that that surprised me.
0: There's a phrase that came up, and I forget if this was from Rich Rolls' book. Remind me of any listen depletion. Do you find that when you're doing these runs? In in that first run where you only ran two miles, did you enjoy that feeling of 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 the, the pain that well not the pain, but the, the depletion? Yes. hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Me too. Or, <laughs> and
2: and I don't know what that is or, or where it comes from, but it's it, it's it it's totally. Like, I'm here for it, right? And I, I don't want to compare it to, you know, when, you, when you're in active addiction, there's a different kind of self-prescribed pain that we put ourselves through, right? Like, I, I had become so comfortable for years. It was like the only thing I knew, really, there was comfort in feeling miserable, right? So, and I don't, mm-hmm. like, these are not the same thing. Like, they, they're, they're much different from each other. But just just you hearing you say that just kind of brought that back to me a little bit. Gosh, it's just such a horrible way to be living.
0: Yeah. In finding running, I find it very spiritual and it's it's definitely such a great experience.
2: Yeah. You, you know, there there is no question that, that running and, and the evolution of my sobriety are very closely linked. Like they are so interconnected and there are so many parallels between the two. And, and that's where I am right now. I mean, this whole thing, like I said, it, it is a process whether I'm looking at a whole training block or whether I'm going through one long race, right? Like the whole thing is a process. And it's just being in that moment, each step of the way that I'm I'm always trying to focus on. And even, even the finish line, right? That's just a snapshot of the bigger picture, right? And it's a nice sort of benchmark and checkpoint, but I try not to get too hung up on, yeah, you know, try not to get too high and then get too low afterwards because, again, it's just just part of the journey.
0: Yeah, I get a little down after a race, you know, yeah. after training and all the buildup to it. I, I've got another question for you. You mentioned after reading uh, Rich Roll's book, you got it in your head that you want to run a hundred miler. Yeah. Did you build up to that by running, you know, a five k, ten k, ten miler, or did you do it like an alcoholic and just go right to the hundred? No, I de-
2: I definitely. <laughs> don't. Oh my gosh! Did I ever? Um, and 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 I went uh, look. So here's here's one of the ways that I I, I see um, the similarities between the two. Every facet of my life, I can't do it alone. It requires a support network. And with that support network, it, it, you know, obviously first and foremost, there's there's my wife, like Hillary. All at once, she is my biggest cheerleader and supporter, and she's also a check and balance too and 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 you know, sort of familial matters or or you know work check or whatever it is, along the same lines is I've always had a coach when I run. I'm a huge fan and proponent of everyone having a coach or a mentor for something, right? you know we, just because we finish our formative schooling years that the learning doesn't stop. It, you know, having a coach we all know this, the phrase right? It's don't train harder, train smarter. So it was very much a progression and I remember like the same feeling finishing uh, my first 100 miler I had that feeling the first time I ran 10k on my own but, holy shit I just ran 6 miles and being in that moment being present and honoring that you don't want to miss out on those those accomplishments um, just because you're you're thinking too far ahead so yeah it it was a progression uh, how much time did it take it was Twenty months, maybe before I ran a hundred, close to two years. Anyway, fifty k was the first, and then we built up from there. For the
1: benefit of the listeners, Mac is—he's not telling the full story. I guess he not only did he run just a hundred miler, but his last two hundred 100-milers, he ran the long haul, one hundred miler, which is the most competitive hundred mile race in Florida. And last year, I think you placed fourth overall in your first hundred miler. Is that correct? Yeah. Fourth. Yeah. yeah, he did.
0: Amazing. And this
1: year, I. I think you finished ninth, right? Yeah. And this year, the conditions were just terrible. Just to finish that race. from what I, I was signed up for that race, but I moved to California. Yeah, I would say I was disappointed <laughs> that I saw the conditions. I'm like, holy cow, man. That's just a rough, tough race. So good on you, man. Two years wow. in a row, top 10, and you started running during a pandemic. That's just amazing to me that, oh, that wow. you were able to do that.
2: Thank you. As for this race, yeah, it was not what people expected. The mud was real. You know, the standing water, I actually found to be a nice reprieve because it would wash the mud off your shoes. Yeah. But yeah, like a 47% DNF rate, I think. Yeah. And long haul is one of those races that, uh, I mean, it's such a good race. And Andy and Amy are incredible. It's built in, and it's a sort of terrain that it's a good introductory 100 miler, right? There's not a lot of vert. It's at a temperate time of year. Conditions should be favorable. Um, and it, and it was anything but this year. And look, I was, you know, the result is is nice. Really, the result for me was finishing that race, you know. And I I had, had surgery in September to to clean up some knee stuff, you know, sort of weighing me down. And actually was probably the reason why there was a July DNF, right? It's not all, you know, victories in that sense of crossing the finish line. And we know that. Yeah. You run these long distance races that that things happen. So I had DNF um, earlier in the year, Georgia Death Race in March, and then Vero Beach. I think that's when I sort of aggravated my knee right there at the end, which was a little bit frustrating. But but look, we have bad days, and those those weren't bad days, those DNFs necessarily. But we have bad days running. We have bad days in sobriety too. That's life. It's just important to remember that you know there's there's the good with the bad. As you were telling your story,
1: I was kind of thinking about that. And, you know, I, I know about those dnfs. you you talked about that on your Instagram and Facebook, and those are some tough races. And I was thinking that even tougher is you're married for what, six months, you said, and then you had to have co- that conversation with your wife, lost your job. You had to admit to yourself and to somebody else who you just married that you're an alcoholic and you need help. I mean, that's some heavy shit. And so <laughs> I'm sure that, You carry that with you and it helps you get through those, those tough times, you know, 80 miles into a hundred mile race or coming back from a DNF or an injury. I mean, if you can do that, you can probably do anything. I mean, that's, that's some hard stuff.
2: You know, there was, um, when I was working the steps the first time with my sponsor, remember a conversation that we were having and it was around what he described as just like, what is the next right action? Like where you are right now, what is the next right action? It's not a big action necessarily. In fact, it's probably a little small action. When you're when you're counting days, when you're early on, like so much you have such an inclination to want to just fast forward and like fix everything, all the damage and destruction that you caused, right? Most notably to to my wife, but to my family and to so many other people. Right. And you and you want it all to be right. And that shit just takes time right and there's no way around it and, and and I remember that conversation with him what he was really doing was trying to to get me to focus on like you're just you're not ready for that yet in fact if you were to try to sort of if you were try to go to make those amends right now 90 days in I you're like yeah that's awesome but you, people aren't ready for somebody at 90 days to make amends so I carry that, that next right action bit with me in races for sure. I mean, I can't tell you, you know, when I I don't really believe in problems on the race course, I like to think of them as situations, right? And, And there are solutions to situations. So if you can think about what the next right action is, you know, with practice, the time from thought to actually taking the action shrinks. And and it was the same in sobriety. You know, when when it's early, for me, it, I really had to think about that long and hard. Like, well, okay, what am I supposed to do here right now? Because I was relearning everything.
1: It's neither good nor bad. It's just how you react to it, right? And you can apply that to anything in your life. Totally. It's a couple other things that uh, struck me. You ended your drinking career in New York, New York City. I, I kind of started my drinking career in New York City. I grew up there. I grew up taking train to... New York, drinking the whole way there. People washing and uh, you know, Washington Square Park, and then drinking on the way back on the train. So it's also a, a, an easy place to start a drinking career, which yes. I don't recommend. Yeah, I also did the. Uh, I went to ninety AA meetings in ninety days because that's what Rich did. The Finding Ultra book was was a huge uh, influence in my life, where I am today. Just like it, it seems like it has been to you as well. Yeah, listening to your story, it's an amazing story and it's really,
0: really inspirational.
1: So thanks for sharing that.
0: Funny thing, my sponsor has used those words, take the next right action before as well. And that applies to so many things in life. And I'm a a person who, who preaches all the time that small incremental changes lead up to huge changes down the road. It's really hard to make big, huge changes. But if you just do these little pieces before you know it, your life is totally, totally different. And I I really appreciate too, when you were talking about how you didn't finish every race. These are hard things to do and training for these are incredibly, incredibly hard. And I know one of the things you mentioned you wanted to talk about was what defines success for you. Do you look at those races that you DNF? Do you look at those and can you frame those as a success? You know, I always look at those things as a success because you know what? You got out there and you tried. And there are so many people who never even try at something in life. And to me, that's the true failure is not trying. Can you talk to me a, a little bit about, you know, how you do define success in your life?
2: I, I would echo what you said too, right? It's showing up, you know, and, and, and make a commitment to something. When you do the work to get there, getting to that start line is a success. And look, we, the three of us, you know, and I'll certainly just speak for myself. Like we, we have a different perspective than a lot of people do, right? Like, we've seen some pretty gnarly stuff. We've been in in some pretty dark places. So I I like to, you know, always keep that in mind. And, you know, success for me is my three adorable children, right? And having a job where people depend on me and a wife who can count on me, being a present father, right? And that's the stuff that that really, really matters to me. You know, and as far as the running goes, yeah, I mean, look... If you DNF a race, the only thing that says to me is there's a learning opportunity in that, right? Some something happened, so figure it out. You know, I've spent my career in education, so I'm sort of also wired to to be. You know, when you're a teacher and educator, you're also a lifelong learner, right? So that's part of my nature. That first hundred that I ran at long haul last year, I'll be honest, I, I the the dark places that everyone talks about and that I've been in since then. Um, it never happened in that first race. It was just like, it, just steady. And and there wasn't like, there's not a ton of value in that necessarily. <laughs> like there is if like something goes sideways. So yeah, I mean, that's my take on that. So.
0: You bring up another point too. And it's wonderful to hear that your definition of success is is your family and your children. You use the word present. Being present in your life, that to me is, is everything nowadays, to actually be here and experience it and, and remember it, <laughs> which is fantastic. But it sort of is a good segue into you have a family, you have children. Where do you find the time to train for 100-mile races? And can, do, do you find any kind of balance in life when you're training for these races? Balance is a topic I, I think about a lot.
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, that is all I think about. I, it, it is central to my thought process throughout the day. And again, sometimes I need help. You know, sometimes Hillary's there to, to check me a little bit because she can tell I'm just starting to skew a, a little bit in one way. The bottom line is this, if I'm being totally honest, I, I sacrifice sleep. Um, I don't mm-hmm. get the amount of sleep that I should that I want. And believe me, I know how important it is to, to a runner, right. And to an athlete and to anyone, like I, I get it. But that said, if you could add, you know, a 25th, even 26th or seventh hour to the day, I, I'd be pumped. I make every effort I can to get my running and my training done at a time when it does not interfere with the rest of my daily life. I get up really, really early. It, it is a great feeling to go out on a long run on a Saturday, go out and back and walk in the house and everyone's still sleeping. It's like total win. I'm playing with house money at that point. I just feel like like I nailed that that part for sure. But that balance piece, I also think a lot about what my race schedule actually looks like and and relative to a lot of the folks. That I hang out with and I see at these races, my, my schedule is pretty light. You know, I, I usually have, I would say, two A races a year. And, you know, in those two races preceding them, m- maybe one sort of B race or, or training race um, of a shorter distance building up to it. And that, and I can't frankly imagine more than that. Good on everybody that's able to go out and run an ultra a month. I can't do that. And I don't know that I, I would even want to. But I'm glad you said it first, Doug, because that balance um, piece—that's really everything.
1: We talk to people every day, and uh, that's one of the things that comes up probably more than more than a lot is that uh, they just don't have the time to train. I don't have the time. I don't know how to to fit it in. My schedule's too busy. So what 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 would you tell? What would you say to that person? What what kind of advice would you give them? Where 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 should they start? Where do they find that time?
2: Well, you know, I I think sometimes we think about time as like We need, you know, how many hours you need for a specific training day, right? And and I guess where I'm going with this is that, you know, if you're going to progress as a runner, it's the consistency factor that's more important than anything else. So you know, I have an I have a planned hour run, hour and a half run. Things get weird during the day, and my schedule gets thrown off. If I can do 20 minutes, that's still I laced them up. I went out. I did 20 minutes. Right, And that counts, I mean, in so many different ways, psychologically, biologically, that's far more important than hitting that hour.
1: I agree with that. Just showing up is huge. Just show up and do what you can do. Another thing I tell people is look at the screen time on your phone. How many hours of screen time have you been staring at that little rectangle in your hand? Just take 10% of that and go outside and run. Don't tell me you don't have 10% of that five hours you spend staring at a phone to go out, you know, better yourself because, yeah. you know, there you go. You just found 20, 30 minutes. But yeah, I like that. It, just show up. Just do what you can do. Get out the door and then make it a habit. and Just keep going. And that's that's what you did.
2: Yeah. So and, it, and it's habit forming, right? Like if you uh, you guys listen to um, Andrew Huberman at all. Yeah. All the time. There, there was a great, great episode he did where he was talking about limbic friction right and and the notion that our bodies like we if if we always train you know in the morning right then that's what our body expects so uh, how much harder it is to all of a sudden one day switch that and and do an mm-hmm. afternoon run or something it, it's that that we really literally are programmed that way um, through that habit forming so where i'm going is that that first couple of times but sure it'll feel probably mentally a little bit more challenging but just keep doing it and all of a sudden that is the habit and 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 yeah. that's what makes you tick i
1: i just wanted to continue on kind of the same vein we also talked to a lot of people who are struggling to get or stay sober or to take that first step i think we covered the get out the door and start running what about that person who just can't get sober stay sober what's your advice to those people because they're, they're listening
2: yeah i'll tell you what worked for me right. And that's, I found people who had something that I wanted, right, and that I was attracted to. And, you know, AA is a a program of attraction, not promotion. And, but I saw, you know, people with whatever, two, five, 10 years of sobriety, and I like, I want that. Right. And then I just followed them. And, you know, I think if you can Find somebody like that and be, be open enough to just take, take suggestions and be willing to accept help. I mean, God, that's so key, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, courage, so- right? You got to have the
1: courage to, to admit that you have a problem and also the courage to accept somebody's help. So That's a hard thing to do.
2: It's a really, really hard thing to do. And I think a lot of people can take that for granted. But I, I just remember uh, it's a tough step at first but it's so crucial that's everything to me I, I can't do any of this alone you know i already said that once from the moment i started having putting days together it's because i was open to help my power uh, greater than myself is in community right when i yeah. talk about my higher power and that's literally like the people in the room that is a collective power that is greater than one and so and that's always sort of sh- Kind of shaped how I define that, and I think part of the attraction too to like the ultra community, right? Like the, it's so strong and so supportive, and you know sometimes it takes somebody stopping mid race when you're over on the side to help.
1: Yeah, I can yeah I can attest to that. The Florida the, the ultra running community in Florida is tight. Yeah, that is that is a fun place to go run a race. I, I loved my my time in Florida. If you got the listeners that uh, me and Mac. We, we met at a race in Florida at, I don't know, what was it, one o'clock in the morning in the middle of woods yeah. in some remote place in Florida? I couldn't get back there if I had to. I was running a race, and it was, it was one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, and uh, there was a few of us left, and this guy shows up, and he's got this big camera, and he's taking pictures, and he's out there a mile out on the road. He's cheering us on. Like it's you know eight o'clock in the morning at the New York City Marathon, and I think you must have found out that I that I'm plant based like you are, and then because I was not eating well, I was just drinking Survivor Night Coca Cola, and like strawberries showed up and good food showed up, and, and
0: and and what
2: and what did you do that race, Benny?
1: Like an angel from from above, <laughs> there were strawberries. <laughs> yeah. I think I remember strawberries, but I, I finished. I met my goal that race, and I kept going. When I wanted to quit, doing no small part to the max uh, contribution of food and support and cheering us on. Yeah, it was awesome. So that's how we met. I've been a fan ever since.
2: Well, the only reason I showed up that late is because the kids were in bed. You see, I could uh, yeah.
1: balance. Amber, Amber was asking me, what the hell was he doing out there at 2 o'clock in the
2: morning? I said, I don't
1: really <laughs> even know. and I'm just glad he showed up because yeah, <laughs> huh. I probably would have quit.
0: He came down from vegan heaven and saved you. He did. He did. It's wonderful.
1: Theo, oh, the race director, was feeding me Coca Cola because that's all I could could keep down. For.
2: I got, got one of my one of my all time favorite shots of you. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, that, wow. yeah. Such a good subject. Uh, you you nailed it.
1: That's how I was feeling. Just yeah. how I was looking, and that. Was, oh, yeah, people always ask me, "How do I know if I'm i in i like zone three or zone four? Well, I said, well, if your if your hands are on your hips when you're done, you're probably in zone three. If your hands are on your knees, you're probably zone four. My hands were on my <laughs> knees and and lowering. It was bad. Memorable uh, night. Been uh, a fan, great. like I said,
2: ever since. It's coming up. Death of Dupuy. It's in a couple yeah, weeks. Yeah, yeah. You should enter. I think I'm going back out with my camera. Cool. I have I have a busy spring, and then I'll I'll peel it back a little bit. I've got boston marathon coming up in april which will be believe it or not my first marathon i've never run a marathon distance um or stopped at a marathon distance yeah so that'll be fun and then that's
0: actually it'll be part of my build for keys 100 do you have one on here too the blue hill mountain trail fest that looks like you're the race director of so two questions that i have about that is that in Maine? And then my second question, how did you get into race directing? Is this the first time you're doing that?
2: Uh, This will be the second year. And yes, uh, it is in Maine and I am the race director. Talk about a moment of clarity. So I I grew up in Maine and uh, we still go back in the summertime for a couple of weeks. Uh, Down East Maine, near Acadia National Park, beautiful area of the country, really unlike any other coastline out there. I had one of those moments of clarity uh, on an early morning run up up Blue Hill and, and Blue Hill mountain uh, is barely a mountain you know it's about 960 feet but it rises straight up from the ocean you know in maine in the morning time there's always a a thick marine layer fog bank down at the bottom at the ocean and and you come up on top of blue hill and the sun sun's rising and it's literally like one of the first places in the country you see the sunrise you've got that marine layer below you you feel like you're on top of the world i mean you might as well be on top of everest It was on that run that I was like, there needs to be a race here. Absolutely. We need to have a race right here. It's super special, man. It's, It's so nice to go back to the community I grew up in. We had our inaugural year last year, August of 2023, about 100, well, over 100 runners from 15 different states. Awesome representation from Florida. Even Andy Matthews, the long haul race director, he came up. Justin, the timer, he he ran ran the clock for me. So we had a great crew up there. And uh, it was really, really, really special. The volunteers were all local. My old baseball and soccer coach was volunteering. He was there at three in the morning to set up an aid station, the wood shop teacher. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was in tears like all day. It was, it was incredible. And you're, you're a, uh,
1: you're a good hype man. I'm, I'm ready to sign up right now. Yeah, so. I tell you, you, <laughs> gave, you
2: gave me a chance to plug my race.
0: I'm gonna plug yeah, it, man. Well, uh,
2: when
1: I, when did. I saw
0: this, yeah, I, I have, you know, my, my selfish reasons for asking. I'm only down in, in Rhode Island, and Maine is not too far away from me. Oh man. And uh, what you just <laughs> described, I, I had like a spiritual experience early in sobriety uh, at Acadia. I went on a camping trip there. I was running at the time. I did this beautiful ten miler down to a lighthouse and back. And oh God, when you were just describing the fog in the morning, I, and I was catching sunrises, I got to see what I have going on in August because um, if I if I don't have anything, I, I'm 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 there. I'm so there.
2: Yes. Yeah, so Doug, if you if you make it, you come up and you get on top of Blue Hill and you look east and you're looking at Acadia. You see Cadillac oh. and all of that right there. So, that
0: sounds so so special.
2: Wow, and it's I mean, how did I get into it? It mean, it's like volunteering to do the coffee at a meeting. I mean, yeah. why wouldn't I? I mean, <laughs> it's such a special thing that. Oh. Um, yeah, it was a no brainer. Yeah,
1: all that free time you have, <laughs> why not just run a race? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, so we have. I mean, it's it, it's it's uh the distances we range from five k to fifty k. So it's not we're not out there for the whole weekend. But we do some other fun stuff, too. We've got Blue Hill is actually this mecca for steel pan ensembles, steel drums. So we've got like a mm-hmm. lot of steel drum band that's at, at the race hub. They're playing music, kids activities and stuff. It's it's a lot of fun. We added a 25K this year because that, that was some of the feedback. We had 5K, 10K, and 50K. Uh, we needed something in the, in, in the middle that people could kind of stretch, but weren't quite ready for that 50K. So
1: You said you had 100 people your first year?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. great. That's a
1: huge success. Huge
2: success. Congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, and you know, and and Maine is funny because it, it's one of those places where you know people are like fiercely independent, right? And a lot of the economy yeah. that time of year is driven on tourism. Yes, it is the only set of circumstances where where you could take somebody from from away, right, from out of town, and put them in very close proximity to a local, and they're literally like taking selfies together and smiling and laughing. There's no other set of circumstances where you, you could create that camaraderie like instantly.
1: Yeah, um, you're right. 40 miles, you
0: know, 25 miles into a 30 mile race. Good way to form a friendship. Exactly. So I was checking out your uh, Instagram and one of the things just caught my attention where you said you were handing out cars to people at the finish line. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I, don't, I honestly, I
2: don't know where that came from. I really <laughs> it made uh, me laugh. Uh, yeah, no, I I think I was it wasn't it like Tom Cruise on Oprah or something. It was like you win a car.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> I like crossed the finish line. And I I started rambling uh, <laughs> in the long haul. <laughs> I, I was a little gassed. I had a nice kick at the end there. So I think that maybe uh took a little bit out of me once I crossed the finish line. But I yeah, finished.
1: I, I um, think I noticed that. Did you was your last mile like sub ten or something like that?
2: Uh, I was I was running like seven thirties at the end. Um, I'm a Strava geek, and I looked, woo. and something caught my eye at the end of that race. Yeah, we came out of the mud. The mud was like mile like 13, 14, 15-ish, ran on and out and back. And I had uh, Cole was 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 pacing me, a really, really strong runner down here, one of one of the fastest uh-huh. there in Florida, and he was pacing me. And we came out strong at the end, so we ran through the mud coming out, which was that in and of itself You know, picked up a lot of time. We hit firm footing, you know, started the, like 8.30, then 8.15, then 8s, then, you know, 8s. <laughs> um,
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at your Strava right now. Mile 101 was 9.29. and Then the last half mile, you ran at 7.45 pace. Damn, man. <laughs> Must be all that, uh, those plants.
0: I think so. I think I, so. I, was I, was can't, I, know, can't. I don't know where
1: you get your protein from, but man, you're pretty fast. <laughs> I, uh, I, I I lived
2: on uh, avocado sandwiches all day long.
1: Avocado sandwiches, yeah, that was it,
2: man.
0: Another rich roll tip
2: right there, huh? Yeah, that was get those those healthy fats.
0: I, uh, I love I love avocados. I'm glad Vinny said the magic word Strava. This is a question I like to throw out there as well. You talked about it a little bit earlier in the interview, where you know if you have an hour run on your schedule, but you know your life's just too busy or things are getting in the way. You go out and you do 20 minutes and you feel good about that. And I think a lot of people get caught up in perfectionism of, I have to do this training plan exactly as it's laid out or or, I'm a failure. And then a lot of people get into the habits of looking at Strava and saying, I'm not as fast as this person. I'm not going as far as this person. What advice can you give to people? I I always tell people, try to relate, not compare. What advice can you give to people who may have thoughts like that?
2: You know what somebody recently told me the other day, or uh, a couple weeks ago? They said, it was a a brilliant quote, and I forget who deserves the credit, but it was, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm. And uh, man, that couldn't ring more true. And I love Strava. Right. but, but at the end of the day, it is a, another social media platform. If you're struggling with that, and there are times when I've fallen into that, turn it off like go dark, keep I mean, you can stay connected, but make your account private then you won't go on. you know I, I mean, I think that's a practical way to go about it. It's actually something that I did coming out of um that surgery and 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 it wasn't as much that I' was getting on and, compa- and looking at other people's times, but it was just, you know, sometimes it's just th- that little extra noise that we just don't need. That's not why we run. Right. And. Right. You go take the watch off right? and, and try that run naked. Right. Like as in no watch, you can try running naked too, if you want for that matter, but <laughs> you know, naked in the sense that we think of it with the watch. I mean, I, yeah, it, there. If you find those things are distractions, then, you know, I think there are ways that you can, you know, limit them by,
0: by, by not being as present. For me, it is all about finding joy in the journey. That's what this is all about. I'm lucky and, you know, I'm training for certain races and I'm trying to hit certain goals, but, you know, ultimately when I'm on Strava and everything, I don't care what other people are doing. I'm just doing me. I'm trying to compete with myself, you know?
2: Yeah, and 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 I and and like we all know who's fast. And if you're actually really paying attention, you know on right. Strava, you go on there and you look at their runs. They're running like tens, elevens, twelves, right? They're doing yeah. all the right things. Some days they're running sixes and sevens, but most they're in that zone two, baby. All
1: right, Mac, you got any words of wisdom? Any parting words for our listeners?
2: Man, enjoy it every you know, like if you're if you're getting into this running thing enjoy every step of the way and you know like i said you know the the races those things are just snapshots in time right and and that's we don't run to race very few of us anyway as we get sober and as we get more time in sobriety our lives become really really full again right and 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 that's a beautiful thing but with that, you know, it comes some um it's just a new way of life that we have to constantly adapt and, and evolve. And and that's the beauty in, in running is that you know it, it's such a such a tangible example and so relative to, to the rest of our lives that it's such a gift. It's a total gift And I'm here for. It. I'm here for the ride.
1: Amen, brother. Yeah. Those are such well said. Well wise, said. wise, wise wise.
2: Eat plants. Eat plants. That, that's my right. parting, my, my parting advice. Eat plants.
1: plants. Well, uh, it's been great, and I'm, I'm so happy that you were our first guest. I didn't disappoint. The listeners are gonna love it. So
2: Doug's gonna do some cutting room magic. That's right. well, yeah, exactly. Everything man. I everything I said will be
1: appropriately <laughs> discarded, and Amber will be back for the next one. <laughs> that's right. But anyway, man, it was great catching up to you. You have a a good time in Austin. Appreciate, uh, appreciate
0: you, that. Thank you so much for joining us, and I I hope to see you in Maine in August. All right, love it. Yeah. All
1: right. right.
2: Peace. See you.